Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the cleansing of the leper and the healing of the paralytic, the Lord Jesus demonstrated the extent of his saving work. Luke records these miraculous works to show just how far-reaching Christ's power really is. He has the power both to sanctify and to justify. He made the leper whole again and restored him to fellowship with his covenant God. Restored, restored to him. He made the leper whole again and restored him to fellowship with his covenant God and covenant people. That's sanctification. Then, before he sent the paralytic away, leaping and praising God with a perfectly healthy body, he emphasized a greater miracle. Son, your sins are forgiven. That's justification. The man went home at peace with his God. So Luke is teaching us that the mission of Jesus Christ has to do with battling sin and its effects. If you were to read over chapter 5 from the beginning, you would see that more and more Christ interacts with sin. And now what is implicit in the miraculous healings becomes explicit in the calling of Levi. For sin is not a detached entity on its own. Sin is a fully integrated reality of the human condition since the fall into sin. To speak of sin, we must also speak of those who do the sinning, sinners. And in the calling of Levi, we see that Christ came to call sinners to repentance. So I may proclaim God's word to you under this theme. Christ came to call sinners to repentance. First, we will see the sinner's delight. Second, the Pharisees' disgust. And third, the physician's diagnosis. Our text begins with what appears to be a routine description by Luke in verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. On reading this, we might have an idea that the Lord Jesus simply glanced in the direction of Levi. But the Greek verb here means something more than just taking a quick look. When Jesus saw the tax collector, then he was paying careful and prolonged attention to Levi. He was sizing him up, as it were, keenly observing this man, we could say, studying him with his penetrating gaze. And when you understand this action of the Lord Jesus, then Luke's description is not routine, but in fact out of the ordinary, for Jesus is not just studying any man. He is paying careful attention to a tax collector, writes Luke, and that is totally unexpected. For tax collectors had a very bad reputation in Israel in those days, and a reputation that was well-deserved. To understand this reputation, you must understand that a tax collector ultimately worked for the Roman government. It was the ruling authority that had the right to charge and collect taxes from the people in its territories. And while people in general, even today, do not like to pay taxes, that feeling was much stronger among the people who had been conquered by a foreign army in Rome. Here in Canada, we can relate a little to this feeling, for as a province, we often complain about having to pay taxes to Ottawa, which is understood by many to be a distant, faraway authority 
that doesn't really care much about us. People become resentful when they see their federal tax dollars being used in other parts of the country, but hardly at all in their home province. Well then, you can imagine the kind of resentment that the Jews had towards Rome. For just about every tax dollar they gave went to paying the wages of Roman officials or improving the Roman capital city or maintaining its roads and its army. Rome didn't collect taxes to make life easier for the Jews. It went to strengthening their grip on power, and so people hated paying taxes at all. Now add to that resentment the method of tax gathering, and you have the Jewish people brimming with hatred. For the Romans used to use a tax farming system to gather their dues. Local residents could bid for the contract, so to speak, to gather the local taxes. The offer went to the highest bidder, and that person then went about collecting taxes, earning his living by taking a percentage for himself. And here's where the corruption came in, for it was very easy for these tax collectors to charge more than the Roman government demanded. And the average resident had no recourse because record-keeping was poor, and beside, it was the tax collectors who kept the records anyway. As long as Rome got its money, it really didn't care how the tax collectors did their job. And so the conquered people of the empire came to hate taxes and their thieving tax collectors. And nowhere is this more true than in Israel, for it was considered an act of betrayal and treason to join forces with the Roman government against your own people, God's holy covenant people, no less. People viewed the local Jewish tax collectors as sellouts and robbers, the scum of the earth who had no religious or moral backbone, who made themselves rich on the backs of their own people. And now it was such a man that Jesus studied that day with his penetrating gaze. His name, says our text, was Levi, a Jewish name that is full of irony. Here is a man named after one of the great ancestors of the Israelites, Levi, son of Jacob, whose sons were later given the beautiful and precious task of serving in a tabernacle and temple. The name Levi normally brings to mind the faithful tribe of Israel, who stood by Moses and the Lord when, while, when all the people continued to dance around the golden calf. The name Levi means to be joined, and that day Levi had been joined to the Lord in holy zeal for his name. But now this Levi had betrayed his own countrymen and had joined himself to Rome in order to make himself rich. This Levi was sitting in his tax office alongside the road near Capernaum. He was very likely gathering the tax on goods being transported through the reason. Not quite the GST, but you get the idea. The people would normally try to avoid the tax booth, and Jews would certainly not study him with contemplation. Yet Jesus carefully turns his focus and attention to Levi, the tax collector. And if that was not surprisingly enough, the next new move no doubt shocked everyone, including Levi. For Jesus says to him two words, which he never forgot. Follow me, you, Levi, you sinner, you traitor, you thief. Follow me. You see, beloved, that's the shocking implication of Christ's call to Levi. 
This man was no angel. He wasn't just your average Joe Blow, who, though imperfect, nevertheless tried to live a good life, tried to be obedient to God, tried to love God and his neighbor properly. No, Levi was living his life in his own way. Levi was a man living in disobedience to God and showing no love to his neighbor. Levi was a man living in sin, and yet Jesus says to him, follow me. What we see in Levi's call is a demonstration of what Christ later explains in verse 32 to the Pharisees. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Levi the sinner was being called to repentance. And what we see in this call, brothers and sisters, is the mighty grace of God at work. Christ came to call sinners. This morning, as we do every Sunday morning, we read God's law. We read God's law and we were convicted again of our sin. The mirror of God's law showed us an ugly reflection of our lives. And we confess together that, yes, Lord, we have again transgressed your holy law this past week. We are sinners, just like Levi. We have gone our own way time and again. But then the call of the Lord Jesus breaks through the dark clouds of our sin and misery. For he says to us, too, follow me. Christ came to call us sinners, too. And then notice Levi's response. It is twofold. We read in verse 28, Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Levi just walked out of that tax booth and followed in behind Jesus with the other disciples. Just like that. His response was immediate, and it is complete. He left everything, it says. We should understand that Levi left a lot that day. He left his lucrative business behind he said goodbye to his contacts with Romans official, Roman officials, to his position of favor with them. In short, he left everything that, entic- that had enticed him to sin and that had formed a part of his sinful life. He forsook it all, just like that. Are you also willing to leave behind your life of sin, beloved? We know from other parts of the Gospels that Levi was also being called to an office of disciple and later apostle a position which meant he had to leave his old job. But in the context of our passage, his departure from the tax office is also given here as a symbolic demonstration of repentance. For Jesus came, he says in verse 32, to call sinners to repentance. And repentance means leaving behind your former life of sin. Repentance is doing a U-turn with your life. With your life, you are heading in one direction, living for your pleasure, doing what you wanted, when suddenly the Lord moves your heart to repentance and you turn around 180 degrees. Then you start traveling the other way. Levi did a 180 in his life. He left everything, the whole old life of sin. Have you given yourself over to such radical action? Have you identified the sin in your life and are you willing to part company with that sin? Sin has, an insid- has the insidious quality of becoming like an old pair of jeans. It feels so comfortable, so good to wear, the kind of thing you don't want to part with. When sin is so comfortable, then it can easily hide in our lives so that when we pray in general terms, Lord, forgive us our sins, our thoughts never go to that sin that we feel so content with. 
Brothers and sisters, do not let your sins hide in your life behind generalizing prayer requests. Be brutal with your sin. Look hard at your life with God's law firmly in hand and identify the sin for what it is. Do you have a sinful addiction? Do you hold a grudge? Do you hold ill will toward another? Do you speak or think of others in in an unloving manner? Are these, all these are comfortable sins which we can spend years developing and getting used to. But Christ says, follow me. Sin cannot be forgiven if it is not confessed. And realize that Christ is calling you to radical action, something he calls repentance. Step out of the tax booth of your sin and into a new life following Christ wholeheartedly. And when you do so, you will also share Levi's second response. In verse 29, Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Levi was so filled with joy at being called out of his sin that he held a great feast for Jesus. Not a coffee social. Not a meal just for Jesus and the other disciples. No, Levi's joy at finding forgiveness in Christ led him to throw a great banquet, writes Luke. He spares no expense, but throws open his home and his wallet to celebrate salvation. Then what does he do? He invites all of his friends, all of his fellow sinners, who had cavorted with him in his life of sin. He wants them to share in the same grace that he has come to know in Christ. Levi is overjoyed. The sinner is delighted and wishes to share that delight. Do you also know of the joy of forgiveness, brothers and sisters? One sure test of whether you have tasted God's grace is whether you have the joy of forgiveness. For if you don't know of the forgiven sinner's delight, chances are you will end up sharing the disgust of the Pharisees. For while the celebration was going on in Levi's house, the Pharisees were looking on in disdain and disgust. Jesus, the teacher from Galilee whom they had observed performing miracles, is now socializing and even eating with known sinners? Luke tells us in verse 29 that Levi had invited a large crowd of tax collectors and others to eat with Jesus and his disciples. These others are called sinners by the Pharisees, a charge which is not denied by Jesus. Levi had invited fellow cheats and thieves, along with their henchmen and contacts, to eat with his new master. If Capernaum had a mafia, they were all gathered at Levi's table that night. And as if the type of crowd is not scandalous enough, the Lord Jesus even accepted a dinner invitation at the tax collector's home. To eat a meal together is something more than merely speaking with people. We have it even today that to invite someone in for a meal is a more, meaning form of, more meaningful form of fellowship than just a quick cup of coffee. And even more so in the days of Christ, a meal meant intimate association and fellowship. To share a meal together was symbolic of sharing your life with each other. And this is what upsets the Pharisees so much. We find their complaint in verse 30 addressed to the disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? 
Notice how the Pharisees don't approach Jesus directly, but rather question his disciples, as if to undermine their master's moral integrity. And their question is meant to embarrass them and to shame them into quitting from Jesus' retinue. Why are you eating with such people? You know better than to associate with such sinners, with such unrepentant people. That's not what we've taught you. Come on, get out of there. You're not one of them, are you? Pharisees, remember, were protectors of the law and taught the people to obey the laws and the traditions as a way to earn God's favor, to earn God's favor again. In their eyes, the tax collectors and thugs that associated with them were a write-off. They were living in direct and constant violation of the law, and so were viewed as those who would be condemned when the Messiah finally came. At all costs, they had to keep away from association with such sinners, lest they become tainted or unclean themselves. Such people could ruin their hopes and plans for restoring Israel to glory by the obedience to the law. The Pharisees are disgusted at Jesus' association with sinners, and in their disgust, they show the mental separation they have made between themselves and the crowd of tax collectors. The Lord brings that separation to light when he said to them, in verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Christ uses the categories implied by the Pharisees' judgment. The Pharisees regarded themselves as righteous and the tax collectors as sinners, and never the twain shall meet in their view. The righteous shall have no truck with sinners, but shall remain separate, they thought. The trouble is, these Pharisees were self-righteous and did not see any need for repentance. Later in Luke's Gospel, Christ gives a parable to this effect when he describes a Pharisee who goes to the temple to pray and says to the Lord, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. You see, beloved, that is the heart that beats in the Pharisee's chest. He makes himself righteous before God because of his own works. It's an attitude that can easily overtake members of the church because it is an attitude that comes naturally to our, sin, to our sinful fallen hearts. I'm not the one with the problem. Talk to him or talk to her. It's not difficult to foster a self-righteous attitude after having taken an inventory of our lives. For we say, yep, I've done all the right things. But when there are tensions between people or even serious disagreements, then the response is quickly, I haven't done anything wrong. Go talk to the other guy. And when such people observe others fall into sin, they are quick to say, See, I told you so. And when those same people repent by God's grace, there is skepticism and distrust that the repentance is for real, and they cannot bring themselves to share in the joy of repentance. Brothers and sisters, examine your own hearts to see if this attitude lives there. For if it does, then you must come down from your high horse and repent in humility of heart before your Lord Jesus Christ. It's only when you recognize your sin that you can be a part of Christ. Jesus came to call sinners. But if you think you're righteous already, then his call is not for you, and you do not belong to him. Like the Pharisee leaving the temple, you will leave here today unjustified and unforgiven.
Are you a sinner? Do you see yourself seated among the tax collectors at Levi's table, eagerly leaning forward to hear what Christ is saying? Is your heart smitten because, you're, because of your sin, and do you wish your guilt to be taken away? Then listen carefully to the physician's diagnosis. Jesus answered the Pharisees, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It was a reprimand to them in two ways. A doctor is busy working among the sick, trying to bring them healing. And as the teachers of Israel, the Pharisees and the scribes should have been busy precisely among the people who needed God's word the most. The Pharisees recognized correctly that the tax collectors were sinners, but they failed to do their task in teaching them to repent. For that is what God has demanded of his under-shepherds since the days of Moses and also what Christ came to do. In fact, Christ has come to be the shepherd of the people precisely because the leaders of Israel had abused their position. Matthew writes in Matthew 9, verse 36, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Christ came to teach and guide his people in the proper way, in God's way, and that is the way of repentance. As he says, I have come to call sinners to repentance. This part, too, needs to be carefully observed by us. For some people... Take God's action in our text as meaning he freely interacted with sinners without any kind of judgment on their actions. Some even go so far as to use this as an example to have an open Lord's Supper table where all are welcome. After all, didn't Jesus himself eat and drink with sinners and tax collectors? Yes, he did. But he didn't do so to justify their lifestyle, nor did he do so to validate who they were as if things could remain the same. No, he freely associated with sinners so that he could call them to repentance, to a changed life, a new way of living. He also associated with sinners to indicate to them that he was, in fact, taking the burden of their sin upon himself. It was an act of grace, an act of tremendous comfort, but it was certainly not an act of unconditional acceptance of any person person or lifestyle. There is one condition, repentance. For without repentance, no one will see the kingdom of heaven. Luke 13, verse 1 to 5. And it is for that very reason that Paul gave the command in 1 Corinthians 5 concerning an unbeliever within the church, one who called himself a brother but lived an ungodly life. You see, you always have to remember the context of the scripture passage to understand it correctly. Jesus was interacting with people outside the church, outside the kingdom, in a meal setting, calling them to repentance. He was calling them to become insiders, and so fellowship was appropriate. But Paul was addressing the people who are now inside, who are part of the local church in Corinth, people who have confessed their sins, who have been baptized into Christ, and should be living that continual life of repentance. And when they don't, When they refuse to repent, then they are no longer welcome in the communion of the church. Then they are no longer to be present with Christ's true believers at the Lord's table. 
then discipline must take place. Paul writes in verse 11, But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an adulterer or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. The Lord's Supper, and indeed the communion of the saints, is for those who acknowledge their sin and truly repent by faith in Christ. The physician's diagnosis is sharp and penetrating. Self-righteous Christians are out. So are sinners who refuse to repent. They must act complete. They act completely different from each other, but they have this in common: they have never understood their sin nor have they desired the grace of God. But for us, who acknowledge our sin and all of its misery, there is great joy. For Christ has come for you and for me. In his undeserved grace, he has called you, follow me. Leave your sins and pursue righteousness, and then you will know the joy of your master. Amen.